This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital in DeSoto. And hi, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, today we are so incredibly honored to have one of our very own Kimberly Young, vice president of finance operations. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you guys very much. It's an honor to be on this podcast. Kimberly, just like Skip said, we are, we're honored to have you here. We love it when we have people who are members of our own family on the podcast. We've had Mr. Little, we've had Dr. DePriest, and um, I'd like to start out. I know you've been with, with Baptist a long time. Uh, how many years? I, I believe I'm working on my 31st year with Baptist. Tell, it, tell us a little bit about your journey through the Baptist system. I know you've worked You've worked on the clinic side, you've worked on the hospital side, and, and now you're working at corporate. Take, take, us, take us through that, if you don't mind. My journey really began at the corporate office. So I worked in corporate finance uh, within the organization the first few years, and then uh, moved into the managed care finance area. So really worked on the financial modeling of our managed care contracts. Uh, so that gave me really a good picture of uh, an introduction into the revenue cycle, just from a different perspective. And then uh, really, you know, if I were to sort of sum up when I became, you know, accustomed or, or involved in process improvement, it's when I started working in operations. So I, I quickly moved into some of our smaller hospitals uh, as the CFO and then came back to Memphis and worked at Women's. Uh, Collier Bowl and then down at DeSoto. So I've got a real good breadth of different sizes of hospitals, uh, different services. With the women's hospital, it was, you know, somewhat of a different service um, at that hospital than some of the other hospitals, especially at Baptist DeSoto, which was, you know, more comprehensive, as you know, HF. Uh, and then I spent seven years on the, um, the medical practice side. And so BMG uh, is the multi-specialty group or arm of Baptist, and so just growing those practices and acquisitions and the foundation work. Um, yeah, so so now I'm back at corporate, and so I feel like I've had a little bit of little bit of everything, a good breadth of knowledge and exposure to healthcare, both on the provider side as well as on the uh, the hospital side. Yeah, that's good. I know that uh, when I was with BMG, you certainly. Uh, you were always my go-to person when I had any type of, uh, well, any type of question, but particularly any type of finance question. And, and one thing that I'd, I'd like to ask you about, the name of this podcast is Connecting the Dots. And one of the things that I'd like to do or, or ask you about is, is to help us connect the dots between quality and finance. You know, I've been in practice for, you know, 22 years and, and for the majority of that practice, you know, I thought that the finance folks, they didn't have anything to do with quality and they, you know, they, they didn't need to, to worry about quality and, but, but that's changed now that we're, we're moving to value-based purchasing and, you know, the efficiency of care. Tell us how finance and quality are, are intermeshed. So maybe I could start by saying, you know, the finance group 
also used to live in a world where nobody got involved with us. We did the budget. We did, you know, we, we compiled financial reports. We were very good at putting statistics together, but we really didn't want anybody else's involvement. Um, very quickly did I learn that that was a huge mistake. You cannot go into a budgeting process without involving the clinical folks, and now the physicians are a key part of knowing what new service lines we're going to provide, you know, how a new procedure might affect downstream revenue. And so I think that bringing finance and quality together is, real, is really just a natural process of, you know, not only can we help you with the data uh, and, and getting the data and really looking at the data, but help quantifying what, what cost savings could be generated by providing higher quality. And that's really what Medicare is asking us to do, right? Provide higher quality. It should cost less on the end for both them and the beneficiary. And I think what we can bring to the table is helping physicians and, and other members of the, the team a way to quantify how does that quality, um, how does providing quality care really generate, you know, some cost savings. And so I really feel like maybe that's what our, our sweet spot is. Mm-hmm. That's really great. And and to HF's point on this podcast, we've we focused a lot on quality and we talked a lot about continuous improvement in healthcare. Um, and to us, at least to me, you know, finance has always been a little bit of a black box. Um, and I know that you've been heavily involved in the Baptist management system and, and continuous improvement. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of, of what does continuous improvement look like in finance? What does a PDCA look like in, in finance? I've got some really great examples. Um, you know, when we began uh, acquiring physician practices into BMG, uh, we had 29 different EMRs. We had multiple GL systems. And so every month, you know, I was tasked with uh, what, what does a consolidated financial statement look like with all of the different pieces with disparate systems. And I just remember, you know, at the end of the month, I could hardly tell if we were winning or losing because it took so much time to pull that together. So beginning a process of, number one, moving everybody to the same system and then working through maybe at a monthly interval or maybe every two weeks, how do you book your revenue? How do you book your expenses at the clinic? How do we order supplies? Can we limit that number of supplies down to a set few? So really just a gradual um, working with the clinic staff members and the physicians on how can we get better with each month, and it did. In fact, it got better every single month. Uh, you know, at some point we quit crying every day, and, you know, it just became a gradual success story as we could wrap our hands around what did the financial picture of the physician practice entity look like. We could answer the doctor's questions very quickly about compensation. We could hire, you know, staff members much quicker just by improving our processes, which involved a lot of standardization. So that, that's probably my, my number one favorite example. You know, I've got, I've got other, um, we had lots of opportunities on the hospital side uh, with process improvement. I know when I was at DeSoto, our administrator used to ask us to eat lunch at the physician lounge every day. And that really was to make sure that the admin team 
you know, in, in particularly me, was available to the physician so that if they had a question or an issue or wanted to talk about a new supply item they wanted to bring in, they wanted to understand, how do my surgeries look compared to another physician's surgeries? Do I cost more? Do I cost less? What supplies are we all using? What does the reimbursement look like from various payers? You know, it, I became available for those physicians to ask those questions and really we began a lot of collaborative work at that point uh, with the physicians just from a communication standpoint. You know, another work that I know that Kimberly was so instrumental in uh, eight years ago when I joined Baptist was uh, we actually went into the BMG, uh, the billing world, and we made a value stream map. Uh, it was about an eight foot long map. I remember it. And if uh, there was, used to be a cartoon, uh, Jake, you may not remember it because you're a little younger than me, but there used to be a cartoon called uh, The Bill That Travels to Capitol Hill. And, uh, and we would uh, look at how does a claim travel ultimate to where it's getting paid? How does the, a denial work into that? How does, and I remember Kimberly, uh, how instrumental you were about that work. Is there anything that, uh, and we had great improvement. Do you remember anything about that work that comes to mind? I do. Um, what I remember is that we had a multi-team, you know, multi-team members looking at this huge drawing on the on the, the wall, and I think a lot of the team members, and it was operations, it was the business office, it was the finance and accounting, I don't think they realized how many different people were actually touching a claim before it went out the door. And so every time you touch a claim, you delay the process. And what, what we ended up drawing was this huge spaghetti diagram and it all converged in this one box in the middle where everything was getting stuck and that was in the coding department. So we had limited the ability of our coders to code a claim and, and release it until a supervisor reviewed it. Well, we didn't have enough supervisors and you know our director was off educating physicians and so we would have claims sit in that coding box for many, many days, which just interrupts the revenue cycle. You know, it delays the claim going out, it delays the payments coming in. And so once we saw that, we had that aha moment, we really started to, to um, direct our attention towards when we need to change the process. We don't need to hire more supervisors. We don't need to have the director not, you know, go out and educate the physicians we need to change the process and give those coders a little bit more autonomy to release those claims. And so really, you know, that was, that was sort of a game changer for us with the revenue cycle. So well, that's, that's why none of my claims were getting released back when, when I was working in We were in particular holding yours because yeah. you had this expensive that you don't like to use, and we just could not understand. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Mason was using a suture so different from everybody else, and so I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to live that down. No, it looks like it's been it's been going on for years, you know. But I, I do want to respond to a little bit of what what Skip said. And, and first of all, I'm just offended that he didn't think I knew anything about Schoolhouse Rock, and I am well versed in Schoolhouse Rock, and I'm just a bill and only a bill. Um, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill, exactly. <laughs> But uh, Kimberly, you were, you were talking earlier about um, you know the inventory setting and the importance of standardizing 
uh, some of the practices there. And and I know, you know, acquiring new clinics has, has been going on for a while and it, it continues to to pick up. But I wanted to to hear from your perspective just how how much different is each clinic when it comes to uh, financial processes and, and billing and accounting? And uh, how much, you know, we, we talked a lot about on the clinical treatment side about the obstacles that are in the way to getting to a standard. What obstacles do, do you all have on your side? Well, you know, accounting is accounting, and, and you'll hear that, um, you know, the, the, the accounting rules really govern how we formulate, you know, financial statements and how we book entries. Um, but there is there is a, a several different processes that you know if you're a private practice you may follow as opposed to being part of a large not-for-profit organization and you know because you know every time that we would acquire a physician practice we would have to sort of shake out what the processes were and hold them up against what our standard was um, you know that that was sometimes a difficult sell. Um, and, and just because I want to do it this way is not always an answer that's very receptive. And so you have to be real careful about how you communicate that. But um, just working through the basics of booking revenue and expense might be the same, but acquiring, you know, pieces of equipment or capital purchases or, or how we pay somebody and pay scale differential, you know, all that's different. And what we had to realize or, or continue to remind ourselves is that the physician owned this practice for many years. You know, he was the administrator and he was the CFO and he was HR. And so as we moved their practice into a very large not-for-profit healthcare organization, making them feel comfortable with letting go of some of those duties and just practicing medicine and seeing the patients um, was sometimes difficult as well. And so really gaining the trust of the physician, first and foremost, and then gaining the trust of the staff members that, hey, this is why and how we do things. And it's really, um, it, it's standardized so that we can keep up with everything and I can pull it all together quickly, but that we also make sure we're being compliant in what we're reporting. And so, you know, there was a, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of communication that was necessary uh, on the clinical side, everybody practices differently. Um, everyone uses different supplies. And so I think there's still some work to do on um, standardizing some of the supply lists. Skip, I know you have been part of those conversations for many years. And for the large part, I think we've done a really good job of just narrowing down the number of Band-Aids that we buy and the table paper size, et cetera. But, you know, there's other things doctors are particularly attached to, like sutures. And so we don't you know, we push those things when we have to, but not, not you know, we definitely don't want to ruin that relationship between us and the physician. You know, it's it's so it's so funny that you what you just talked about, Kimberly, because that was me. You know, I was in private practice. I was in solo practice for 15 years. I I was the the office manager. I was the CFO. I was the HR person, just like you said, but. And, and 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 it was it was it was hard for me to relinquish some of some of those duties and some of that authority. But I will tell you one thing that it did do was, for instance, you know how we collected money from patients, their copays, how we handled patients when 
let's say they had a huge outstanding balance and they came in to be seen for a, a problem that wasn't related, how I handled that, you know, they would always come to me. And the answer that they got a lot of times depended on what type of mood I was in or what type of day I, I was having, how I felt, you know, if it was a Friday and it was a great day and I was feeling good, I'd had a great run that morning. Yes. If I'd had a bad day, no, but, but I, you know, I came to realize that having that standard that we applied every time and, and, and that's what you guys with BNG did. We had a standard and it just took, you know, all of a sudden it just took all this weight off my shoulders. And, and I think that's when it comes to standardization, I think that's what, you know, one of the things that, that I try to sell to folks is, you know, you may think that you're taking away you're, you're, they're taking away your autonomy, but it actually makes you a lot more free, yeah. you know? Well, and I'll tell you another thing, standardization really helps with compliance. You know, if you set up your standards and you document it, and that's how you teach, when it comes to questioning a billing process or an accounting entry or, you know, anything uh, within your business line, if you've got a standard process and you can document and you can show where that process was created for a specific reason, you know, barring that you're not, you know, doing anything illegal, I really feel like that goes a long way towards uh, demonstrating compliance, you know, on, on any level. And so that's always what I felt comfortable with is I, if I can design a process that is understood by all parties involved, we're more likely to follow it consistently and to do the right thing than if I say, oh, you know, this practice or this hospital, y'all can do it whatever way you want. As long as you get me the, the right numbers, that doesn't always work because people can bury things differently, maybe intentional or not, but they can, you know, bury expenses and, and perhaps miss recording revenue. And so really it just makes my job easier if things are standardized and everybody sticks to the standardization. Sure. Well, so HF brought it up. He he mentioned he was a runner, and I know you're a runner, and I run, and you have some very impressive times and have been racing for many years. Do you bring continuous improvement work to your running and training? And if so, you know how can I get faster? <laughs> well, you're already faster than me, <laughs> and so is HF. So I can't I can't help either one of y'all. But yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it's um, having that plan, you know, and I got my updated plan today from my coach. So having that plan and just kind of sticking to it. And, uh, you know, if you have to move things around, you have to move things around. But, um, and there, there's always that cross-training that's always, you know, important. So I sort of can, can uh, compare this to working in the hospital it's not just enough for me to sit in my office and to generate financial statements and do a great job budgeting and, you know, work with the revenue cycle. If I don't go out and cross-train with the clinical staff and not understand what they do, then when I come back and try to create a budget that makes sense for my entity, then I have missed a huge component of what could change my revenue projections, my expense projections. I could miss out on you know, a new service line or a product that could save us a lot of money. So I really feel like, you know, working with the clinical staff and, and very much so with the physicians because, wow, they see a whole lot of stuff that, 
that us finance people don't see um, really makes my, my whole end result or the financial statements or the budget or the revenue cycle, it makes it so much better. Uh, and and I, I love to, to teach like a new, new leader employee, new leader orientation, we teach a four-hour finance class. I love to connect the dots back to the, to the clinical staff so that they understand productivity. If I manage productivity, then what is that effect to the bottom line of my organization? If I manage my supply orders, how does that impact, you know, the net income for the hospital or for the clinic, you know, at this particular month? So I feel like when I can see the light bulb go on in their eyes and they can convey back to me the clinical knowledge I need to do a better budget, then I really feel like, you know, the, the, we've come full circle as far as multidisciplinary people participating in the financial statements, in the financial processes. Really, it feels, it feels great when they've got just as much input to that than, than I do or any of my accounting staff do. And, and, and Jake, I'm, I'm sure Kimberly would agree. It, it really, really helps to have a good person pacing you when you want to PR in the St. Jude Half Marathon. <laughs> well, right, I, expect, Kimberly? I expect you to have to do that for me, HF, on this coming month. Uh, some people are better pacers than, pacers than other, and yes, that is very beneficial. <laughs> No, but I think I think that's a really good point with the cross training. And you know, earlier on, um, we we discussed uh, the importance of rounding. And um, the president of, of UMass was talking about how you know it was more beneficial for the staff to have the CFO round uh, than to have the the CEO round almost because the CFO can make things happen, whereas the <laughs> the the CEO you know, might not necessarily be able to. And so, um, you know, I'd love to hear, you know, your thoughts on on rounding, um, just just more input on, on how you see the importance of rounding, especially uh, at, at your level and your position. Oh, I think it's very important. Um, you know, I always say a picture's worth a thousand words, and, and I've had folks over the years send me pictures of damaged equipment or, you know, office furniture where you can't possibly sit down just to emphasize the fact that they need more capital dollars. Um, but you're right, rounding in the hospital, actually doing patient visits um, is a struggle for someone like me. You know, I'm, I'm highly introverted and I'm not real comfortable walking into a patient's room and, and they're lying in their bed, but I've just really had some meaningful interactions over the years where you actually see the care that's given to the patients in your hospital. Uh, and I know that, you know, when I would do that, I would always ask, you know, who's your physician? And I would manage that physician up and, you know, just really saw patients kind of light up when they say, oh, well, if you're telling me that physician is good, then they must really be good. So I really feel like that part is important for me, not only you know, so that I am empathetic and can, can see that part of healthcare, but it helps me come back and formulate my plan and, and kind of understand, okay, now I know why we need to add on to that particular hospital. They do need more beds. There is overcrowding in the ED. That uh, piece of equipment in the emergency room has duct tape on it, you know, God forbid. So, you know, it, it, it's, it demonstrates to me the importance of my job and my job having to connect back with the clinical folks for sure. Yeah, I think that's that's great. You know, we 
Brian, our CEO here at DeSoto, he has, I say mandated, I mean, he has highly encouraged that, that all leaders, we, we all have a block of rooms that we, that we're supposed to, to go to every day and, 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 and visit with the patients. And, you know, it really, no matter, you know, for our non-clinical people, it makes, it allows them to do a better job because you actually see see who you're taking care of and, and you, you get to connect with that with that patient and and it just it i'm, I'm glad you shared that with us yeah. you know one of the things that uh i would compliment you on kimberly is uh i was thinking about you this recently we were uh i was talking to a gentleman by the name of dr edgar shine and we were talking about this complex thing that we call socio-technical systems and he said, one of the problems, uh, healthcare is probably the most complicated socio-technical system, but one of the problems is that we get content seduction on the technical side and we give lip service to the social side. And one of the things that's always been so encouraging to me with you is obviously accounting and finance is a very technical uh, function, but you have such a amazing social side to you also. You, I remember you talking to me about how important it was that uh, that finance is viewed as approachable so that people are, are approaching you and they're and they're sharing their ideas and they're sharing their concerns and they're sharing the, the things that they've observed. Uh, can you speak to that just for a second? Yeah, I think that is probably one of the um... The most important parts of a, a CFO's job or someone who is in that role is for them to be approachable. Um, you know, I think a lot of times people think that we should just be called the CFO because every time that someone approaches a CFO and says, hey, I, I need some more FTEs or I need to buy a new piece of equipment or we really need to resurface the parking lot, you know, we're just going to say, no, we don't have enough money. Well, that's, that's not an appropriate response on our part. You know, I think it's incumbent upon us to really go back and strategize with, you know, of course we can't say yes to everything. We, we've got limited funds, but, hey, let's figure out if this is so important or we really need more resources to handle this process, let's see how we can get it done. And if we can make the case where we do need more FTEs or we do need to resurface the, the uh, parking lot or, or get new equipment, then, hey, let's work on it together. Um, we, uh, I, I learned that in the capital budgeting process from some other CF, CFOs. So when I, I took that knowledge to BMG and I said, hey, we've got to do some outstanding return on investment analysis. You know, we spent all this time on, on our capital request, and, and lo and behold, we were able to get more money than I think we even, you know, thought that we could in the beginning. But Really, it was just about making that case believable and getting that input from all the clinical folks uh, and, and making sure that it was teamwork. And it wasn't just me asking for it. It was the whole, it was the whole entity asking for it, and here's why we needed it. So, yeah, being approachable, you know, is, is number one, a, a description of a financial person that I really would like to see, you know, on a permanent basis, you know. One thing I would like to ask, uh, Kimberly, as as we start thinking about the future, and we start thinking about you know different ways that that hospitals are compensated, you know, as we you know, I don't know if it'll be in in our lifetimes, but soon, 
you know, we're going to get totally away from the fee for service type model and we're going to move toward more value based purchasing. What how is how are you guys thinking about that? And and is that on your radar screen? And, and, and are y'all thinking about strategies on on how to uh, how to manage that as it comes? Yeah, that's certainly been on our radar screen for years. And I remember um, before I left BMG, I really thought that would be implemented full time on the physician side. We we just heard so much about it, and you know it really frightens us because for so many years we've been in that fee for service world. Um, every time you order something, it gets reimbursed. And I think a gradual step in that uh, value-based purchasing arena is the bundle programs that we're participating in, both with our employees and just in general. And I know we've seen a lot of success with the back pain and spine bundle, and, and there are many, many others that we participate in. I think the more we, we participate in, in those types of um, different ways of looking at delivering care and getting reimbursed for care, I think that's going to set us up for the value-based purchasing and, and not getting paid for every test that we order. Um, I know that back when I was at DeSoto, we did, uh, we did a lot of work where we looked at our high-cost DRGs. So we looked at DRGs where our reimbursement was much less than the cost. And so um, it was great to just sit around the table and go through each patient in these high-cost DRGs and look at the barrage of tests and, you know, pharmaceuticals that were ordered for the patients, the variation, and even um, some of the clinical folks would meet with the physicians and we determined, you know, really we can, we can hone that order set down to just these two items versus these 10 items and save a lot of money. And so I know that we're capable of looking at the way we deliver care in that manner. And, I, and I'm fortunate that we, we've all been exposed to that, at least all the, the financial folks, you know, that I've worked with over the years. So I really feel like as we move towards that in the future, we've really got the systems in place. We've got, you know, the experience with some of these bundled programs that we're going to be set up for success in the future. That's a good answer. Well, Kimberly, uh, thank you so much as we come to the close of this uh, session. I hope that you'll come back again in the future uh, and eventually we could uh, uh, maybe even price out the, the cost of sutures and see how that. Uh, <laughs> but in, in all seriousness, thank you so much, Kimberly, for being uh, an amazing leader that we get to work with on a regular basis. Thank you for being on the podcast and I uh, hope you'll come back soon. Thank you so much. I appreciate for, uh, you guys letting me be involved. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Kimberly. Thank you.